Who doesn't love a good story? If you don't love a good story, I would suggest you've never heard a good story. Because good stories entertain. Good stories keep your attention. Good stories, honestly, have this way of, of bringing you into the story. A truly good story is an engaging story. A good story doesn't even have to, to necessarily be true. But I think the best ones are. And, and I love the subtitle of this series. It's right up on the screen. We're, we're doing this new series called Stand. And, and it's really tiny, so if you need to get out your glasses, I understand. But it says, Stories of Courage. I really think we love courage stories about as much as any good story. And I think one reason that is is because when we're reading a story of courage or maybe watching one play out on TV or in a movie, I think what happens is, is we sit there and we go, you know, faced with that kind of situation, I, I really think that I could have that kind of courage. We, we read these stories and we say, I, I really think that I could be that courageous, that I could be that brave. And it inspires us. Because in truth, I, I'm not sure I've ever met someone who would honestly say, Courage doesn't matter. I don't, I don't think that, that courage is necessarily a desirable quality. I, I, I think we all understand that, that in the face of something that takes courage, being able to muster up that courage is hugely important. It's a big deal. And so over the next five weeks, and I'm really excited about this series, we're going to look at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and we're going to learn some amazing stories about courage. Because while I said that truly good stories are, are engaging stories and that the best stories are true, I also believe that it's a waste to hear those stories and not try to learn from them. So that's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. And so we want to start today by laying some groundwork right in the beginning of the book of Daniel that will carry us actually pretty far through the summer, these five weeks. And so we'll start out in Daniel chapter 1. And so if you want to open your Bibles or pull it up on your phone or it's in your bulletin or it'll be on the screen some way, you can follow along because we'll spend most of our time today in Daniel chapter 1. Now, a little background here. Every good story of courage, or really every good story, um, needs a villain. Every good story needs a villain, and this story is no different. The villain in this case, though, is actually a king, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was not a good guy. He was a bad guy. In fact, he was an evil guy, and what King Nebuchadnezzar did was, was he was the king of Babylon, and he and his army destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That's pretty harsh. On top of destroying the city, he specifically went and burned the temple, their place of worship. He made sure that their place of worship was destroyed. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he went into what was left, or he sent someone into what was left of the temple, of their place of worship, and he gathered up any of the, the religious symbols, anything left that tied them back to their worship of God, and he put those, and he, he stashed them away where they couldn't be found. That's pretty harsh. But it's like what he was saying was, the worship of your God is so obsolete that I'm going to take anything that matters to you, anything remotely close to your worship of God, and remove it. That God doesn't matter anymore. And he said, now you are Babylonian. And the truth is, he still wasn't done. He destroys the city, he destroys the temple, he takes the religious items, and then essentially King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to destroy not just your present, not just the now, but I'm going to destroy your future as well. And he orders his leaders to go and find the smartest and the best of what's left of God's people, and he brings them to the palace, brings them to Babylon, so that they can be indoctrinated in Babylonian culture to be future leaders, not of God's people, but of Babylon. 
So not only was he destroying Jerusalem right now, their physical structure, but he was destroying their future by taking their best, their leaders, and making sure those leaders would lead Babylon and not someday lead some sort of an uprising or some sort of revolt with the Israelite people. And so that's a little bit of the backstory. I want to look beginning in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. We'll get a little overlap here. But it says this, beginning in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who'd been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Basically, what he did was he called for those who were most likely to succeed, and he made sure that they would succeed for Babylon and for no one else. And the goal was really for them to completely abandon or even forget the beginnings of their Israelite upbringing. So they, they ate from the king's table. They ate his food. They were trained for three solid years to prepare them for service. The goal was to wash away as much of the Israelite in them as possible and make them as Babylonian as they possibly could, to submerge these boys into the Babylonian way of life, ultimately so that they would think like Babylonians thought, they would behave like Babylonians behaved, and they would believe what the Babylonians believed. And while that was a long time ago, what's interesting is that I think that that same idea is what Satan still wants from us today. Is he would love nothing more than for us to turn away from the one true God and to believe what the world believes and, and behave as the world behaves and, 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 and think like the world thinks, that we would lower that standard. And so the idea here is Satan would love to lure us away from that. He would love, love to say, the more you forget about the one true God, the better. And that's exactly what was happening to these boys in Babylon. I've heard it said this way, it is completely impossible to be a sort of Christian and have spiritual success in this world. Some people call it being a cultural Christian. A cultural Christian says, yes, I believe in God. Or yes, of course I'm a Christian. I even go to church sometimes. A cultural Christian says, I'm a good person. I try hard. But a cultural Christian might also say of course, I mean, I'm not religious like some of those weirdo people. I mean, some of those people take it, some, some people, this whole God thing is their whole life. That's just kind of crazy. But sure, I'm, I'm a Christian. I would suggest that cultural Christians won't ever grow their relationship with God very far, that they'll struggle to find victory against temptation, and that they could absolutely be overcome by the darkness in the world. Let me put it to you this way. Cultural Christians stop by Christianity once in a while. It's a part. It's nothing central to their life. It's just a piece of it. You know, they stop by at Christmas, Easter, pick up a Bible every once in a while, pray occasionally. You know the drill. And yet they would still say, yeah, of course I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. But if I go to the gym one day a year, can I claim to be in shape? Because if I can, that's one heck of a workout. If I can go to the gym one day, one day a year and, and, and be... In shape, that's fine. If I can tell my wife once a year that I love her, should I expect her to believe it? And let me be clear, if you're, if you're here every Sunday, that doesn't mean you necessarily need to pat yourself on the back because there, there's more to following Jesus than coming to church, for sure. That This is important. It's hugely important. But if I only work out once a week, will I be in shape? 
If I only tell my wife I love her once a week, how's that going to go for me? Is that going to actually express how I really feel? See, we need to make the presence of God a priority in our lives, seeking Him, depending on Him, living His Word, studying His Word, being grown through His Word, learning to walk in His way, growing in that faith. Sort of Christians, cultural Christians, they're comfortable where they are. They don't don't move toward that at all. And, And the truth is, if they're comfortable there, they cannot and will not have the life and victory that God wants them to have. God wants us to succeed in this life and move on to eternity with Him. And one of the things He wants us to succeed at most is is standing up to evil. In in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wrote these words. He said, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be still standing firm. Standing firm. That, that sounds exactly like our series. And I would suggest that, that that is one of God's goals for us. That if we are walking in His way, if we are following Jesus, we would be able to stand up to temptation, and that we would be able to stand up to evil, that we would be able to stand firm. It is not something that we can do on our own. It is something that we can only do because God gives us the power to do that. But it is still a goal that we're supposed to have. And the only way that happens is by following more and more closely to Jesus. And what's going to happen when you do that is compared to the rest of the world, you will stand out. You will stand out. And I would suggest that if you are never standing out, if you're always blending into the world, then, then you may not truly be following Jesus, because when you follow Jesus, it will make you different than a lot of people. Following Jesus will set you apart. It's just a fact. I mean, the word holy means to be set apart, and God calls us to be holy. He calls us to be different. And so if that's truly what we're striving for, we will be different. We will stand out, which is a good thing. And I know there are people that the idea of standing out, the idea of maybe even being noticed, is is more than they want to think about. But, but standing out for God is a good thing. And that's what we're going to see happen in the life of Daniel and his friends throughout this series and, and today for sure. We will continue in Daniel 1 and verse 6. It says this, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. And yes, I spent a lot of time this week rehearsing those names a few times. So they immediately changed their names. They, they pull them from their homes, they bring them to Babylon, and they immediately change their names. And, and there is a reason for that. Now, now, we're not exactly sure why, or I mean, we're not exactly sure what age these guys were, but it is very likely, biblical scholars mostly agree on this, that they were somewhere between 12 and 15. Now, for anyone who grew up in the church and heard the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I know for me, I don't know that I was always thinking quite that young. I mean, we're talking middle school, maybe freshman or sophomore in high school, to put it in today's terms. These guys were young. They're taken from their home. They're crushed of all dignity. Their homes are destroyed. They're basically told 
Everything that you believed before, everything that your life was before is gone, starting over. And the first thing the king wants to do is change their names. And the reasoning is, is actually pretty simple. Their original names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were names given to them by their parents to honor God. They were names that were given very specifically in worship and in honor of the, the, the one true God. By no coincidence, the new names that they're given here are tied to the worship of false pagan gods. And so what happened was, every time their new name was spoken, every time they heard their new names, it was a reminder that they were now supposed to be serving these pagan gods, not the one true God. It further stripped them of their identity. It's, it's all part of this big plan to eliminate the Israelite part of who these guys were. I mean, that's really what was going on here. It's pretty harsh. And so this is now two kind of major changes forced upon these boys beyond just being moved. Names, and as we read in, in the first passage there, their diet. Because we read that they'd be eating the king's food. And there, there's probably a temptation on our part to say, well, food fit for a king sounds pretty good. Like, I, I would love to eat the food that's made for the king because obviously they're going to make the best food for the king. The problem here was that food and drink prepared for the king was food and drink that was actually dedicated to pagan gods. And for Daniel and his friends, if they were going to stay true to the one true God, eating this food, drinking this wine would damage that. It would cross a line. It would disrespect and dishonor God. And so we read in verse 8, and this is huge for our discussion today, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now this is inter interesting for several reasons, but think about it this way. At least from what we read in Scripture, now that there is more that goes on than what you actually read in Scripture, but from our study here, it does not appear that Daniel fights the name change. But the food was unacceptable. And my guess is his thought process was something like this. You, you can call me whatever you want. You can tie me to whatever God you want. I know who I am. An outward name does not define who I am in my heart, and in my heart I serve the one true God. That, that's probably something along the lines of what he's thinking. That wasn't a battle Daniel was going to fight. And yet he took a stand when he was asked to eat this food that was dedicated to pagan gods because that process, placing that inside his body, eating that food, he felt defamed the name of God. That it was an unacceptable line to cross. He knew what he was willing to do and what he wasn't, and this was something he was not willing to do. And don't miss this. Daniel did not wait until the temptation was right in front of him to make this decision. It's pretty clear from Scripture here that Daniel had made a predetermined resolution, a decision before it happened about what he would and would not do. He had that line, he refused to cross it, and that's, I believe, a big chunk of why he was successful. Because if he hadn't already decided, and they put the food in front of him, he could have done what we so many times in our lives have done, which is we, we rationalize and we compromise and we allow ourselves to do something that we know isn't right. He could have, he could have done that, because if it were me, and they set the king's food in front of me, they set this food in front of me, which I'm sure was of decent quality, if not wonderful quality, I think I would say, boy, that looks pretty good. And I am hungry. And I think that I'd do the thing that we always do, which is it'd be a shame to waste all that food. Like, it'd be irresponsible to throw that away. 
when we, when we clean up after late church, you know, three services across the morning, there's usually a few donuts left on the plate. And we go to take the donuts into the kitchen. And if there's a couple donuts on there, I mean, I'd hate to waste them. Like, I, I got to eat them. It'd be irresponsible. Not We convince ourselves something that doesn't need to happen. We convince ourselves that it's okay. And, and I think a lot of us in Daniel's situation here would say, I'm hungry. And there's food, and it's decent food. And I got to eat. And maybe it's not that big a deal. And I, maybe, maybe if I don't think about it as, as this kind of... Maybe I can just pray and that'll make it better. That'll cleanse the food. And I'm sure he looked around and there were others that were eating the food. But Daniel had made the decision in advance that this was a line he wasn't willing to cross. He decided in his heart ahead of time this would mess up his relationship with God. He made a decision before he was really faced with temptation to do what was right. And I would argue without ceasing that for those that are followers of Jesus, your success in following him, your success in many different spiritual avenues will be determined by what you decide ahead of time and honestly what you don't decide ahead of time. There are simply things we need to be willing to decide in our hearts ahead of time and not wait for temptation. You know, we say, no matter what happens in the future, I will always do this. Or no matter what happens, no matter what's going on, this is something I will simply never do. This is a line I will never cross. I've pre-decided that this is a decision that I have, have to make in order to honor God. Everyone has struggles, everyone has temptations, but we have the opportunity to decide in our hearts what the things are that we won't do. What our answer will be before temptation ever comes. If you struggle with foul language, the middle of a sentence is not the time to be deciding whether you're going to curse or not. Because odds are, if you're mid-sentence before you decide that, you're going you're to drop one. It's going to happen. If you struggle with alcohol abuse, after you're at the bar is not the best time to decide whether you're going to get drunk or not. If you struggle with sexual sin, when you're alone with someone who's not your spouse is not the best time to decide, hey, I wonder what line I won't cross. See, when you predetermine in your heart what you will and won't do, it will help you stay away from the sin, but it will also keep you distanced from some of those temptations as well. I've told the story before of the high school guy I worked with when I was in college who expressed how much he wanted to quit smoking. And, and so we, we prayed for him and we, we, you know, we tried to support him. And he said, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. And a couple of weeks later, he, he told us he was back to smoking. And, and we said, you know, where did you get the cigarettes? And he said, well, when I quit, I, I, I had a couple left in a pack. And I didn't want to waste them because they cost money. And I put them away. And, and I remember like initially being so proud of him because he wanted to quit and he did it the right way. But, but the more I think about the story, the more I think, I think he wanted to quit, but he did not make a predetermined decision that, that this was not what was best for his life, for him to be smoking at the age that he was. It, it wasn't the best thing for his life. He, he did not commit to that because if he committed that, if he made that predetermined decision, he would have then made it harder for himself to go back on that decision. He, he would have gotten rid of the cigarette, so it wasn't so convenient. See, sometimes we, we, we make these decisions. We say, yes, this is one I won't ever do. But we don't actually set ourselves up to succeed. We set ourselves up to fail. When he stuck those cigarettes in the drawer, he set himself up to fail. Now, we need to understand that making a predetermined decision like this doesn't mean that we won't sin. It doesn't mean that we won't be tempted. It doesn't mean that we won't make those mistakes. We're absolutely human. But it's an extra barrier between us 
and sin. It's a huge step toward holiness. And we're tempted to think only in terms of sin and, and predetermining what we won't do, but you can also predetermine in your heart that church is going to be a priority. You can, you can predetermine in your heart that you're going to raise kids if you have them or if someday you might have them, that you're going to raise them in God's way. You can make those kinds of predeterminations as well. And in truth, every now and then, more often than we might even realize, what we've predecided in our hearts to do or not to do, to honor God, will, will, will make us stand out, will, will cause us to stand out. Remember, if you're never standing out, if you're only blending in, then you'll probably never fully be following Jesus. And, and see, what Daniel and his friends did here is they said, I, I've resolved in my heart not to eat this food that's been dedicated to, to pagan gods. And because of that, they stood out. That made them different than the boys who said, eh, it's food. And understand, this was day in and day, day out. Every meal at breakfast, they stood out. At lunch, they stood out. At dinner, they stood out. Next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. They made one decision that set them apart again and again and again. And if you're fully following Jesus, what you'll find is the closer that you get to Him, the more often you'll find yourself standing out. But the closer you are to Jesus, the more okay you are with standing out. It's challenging. The first time you make a decision based on your relationship with God that makes you different than other people, it will be challenging. You will say, man, I, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like people looking at me like I'm kind of strange. I don't know if I can deal with that. The more you do it and the closer you are to Jesus, the more you're like, this is how it's supposed to be. I am supposed to be different. People are supposed to look at me weird because I'm following Jesus, and that really does make me different. And that's what these guys did. Day after day, meal after meal, they stood out. You know, Daniel and his friends, they, they predetermined, stood out because of it, and Daniel himself, he was not ashamed of what was going on. And, and I want you to listen to his wisdom here. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 12 and following, he said this. He said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating food assigned by the king. Yeah, I love this. I absolutely love this. Because Daniel could have made a big deal about not wanting to eat the food. He could, have, he could have thrown a fit. He could have made a big deal about how he wasn't from Babylon and he shouldn't have to do what he doesn't want to do. And he could have made a big scene about, I follow the one true God and this is what I want to do. Some of us, when our beliefs are challenged, even in a small way, react harshly or loudly. But Daniel, with wisdom from God and respect for the authority of the Babylonian leaders, basically says, here's, here's maybe an alternative. Can, can we try this? Can we just try something different here? He did not compromise what he needed to do to stay true to God. And he found a way to do it without having to throw a fit. See, here's the hard part about standing out. You can stand out for the right things in the right way, but you can also stand out for the right things in the wrong way. And you can also stand out for the wrong things in the wrong way. And, and I feel like I have to say this today. I feel like this has to be said. There are Christians today who are standing out for the right things in the wrong way. And there, there are Jesus followers that are even standing out for the wrong things in the wrong way. 
And you know some of them. And maybe if you and I should admit that we've been some of them. I mean, have you ever seen somebody stab someone with the Bible? I don't actually mean like take a Bible and jab at them, but I mean hammer them with Scripture so hard that it's like it's a weapon. This happens a lot on social media. You know, somebody will say something and people just, just hammer them with Scripture. Now, it's good to point people to God's Word. It's not necessarily the right way to do it, to, to, to hammer them with it, to use it as a weapon, to, to come at them harshly and, and, and even with maybe some anger. I, I don't know how receptive somebody's going to be to the Word of God if it's presented that way. It's standing out for the right things, but it's in the wrong way. Or have you ever seen people, and actually this one happens on social media a lot too, maybe we should just get rid of social media altogether. But have you seen people do the, the fatalist thing where they say, you know, turn or burn, you know, follow Jesus or go to hell, it's the real hardcore, like black or white, um, you know, you're going to hell where the worm never dies and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and people go, I don't even know what gnashing of teeth means, but it sounds painful. And Here's the thing, you, you may be confident that somebody you know, if, if they died tomorrow, that they would go to hell, you could be confident in that, but simply telling them that does nothing to potentially change the outcome for them. It, it makes no positive for them. I don't think anyone after being told Turner Burn said, you know, I never heard that before. I think I'm going to follow Jesus now. Like, I, I don't think that's ever happened. Yet there are still people that think that's the way to go about it. It may be true, but it's not what they need to know because there's nothing in that statement about the God who loves them or the Savior who died for them. We want people to fall in, in love with Jesus, not be afraid of hell. But, but some of us stand out for the right things in the wrong way. Some of us, even if, we, even if we think we've got this right, sometimes we don't stand out in the way that we need to. When I was in high school, um, I had no desire to party, none. And I made sure that people knew that it was a predetermined decision in my heart that, that partying, especially drinking, were things that I just wasn't going to do in high school. And in my school, where I grew up, that made me stand out in a huge way because there was a very strong party culture in that school. And I remember being proud of the fact that after a while, people didn't even invite me to parties anymore because they knew I wouldn't come. I know it seems really weird to be proud I didn't get invited to parties in high school, but I was. But sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder if I missed some opportunities back then. Not opportunities to party. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But in the way that I stood out, I put distance between myself and some people, honestly, that I, I probably would have called friends at the time, but I put distance between myself and them, maybe too much distance. You see, alcohol was never around my house growing up. I was never around it. I never was tempted with any of that kind of stuff. But my father, when he, you know, as, we, as we were growing up, it was very clear with us that there was a time in his life where that was something he was, was doing, that he was partying. He was drinking quite a bit at one point in his life, and that there was literally no positive to come from that. And he taught us that well, and I never had the desire to do that. And so what I look back and realize is, I really did have a predetermined decision in my heart that I knew that this was not going to be a problem for me. And I believe now that had I spent some more time with some of those people that I put that distance between, that it would not have made me more likely to compromise my decision, but it could have made a difference in their lives, could have. Because maybe the fact that I stood out could have led to conversations, and maybe those conversations could have turned spiritual, and maybe God could have moved through those conversations, and maybe by the grace of God, some of those people would be standing out for God today. 
as well. Not, not because of me and not because I chose not to drink, but because God can work through situations like that. You see, here's what I believe. I, I believe that this idea that we can predetermine, that we can predecide, that we can make commitments to God in our hearts of what lines we will and won't cross, of the things that we will and won't do, that those decisions, the ability to make those decisions, can make us extremely dangerous instruments for God's glory. Because when we make those predeterminations, we can go into the places and into the situations, the kind of places and situations where Jesus would have been extremely comfortable. You look through the New Testament. Where was Jesus hanging out? He was hanging out with the, the, the hardcore sinners. And we can make those determinations and say, these are the lines I'm not going to cross. This is what I'm not going to do. And that because of that, we can walk into those places and have an impact in the lives of people who we might not otherwise be around. And then we could get them, help them to know Jesus without compromising our own souls, without bending our predetermined decisions. You see, if all we do is stay away from sin, then eventually what happens is we fool ourselves into thinking that, that we have distanced ourselves from sin, which is flawed anyway because we're still sinners. But what we do is we separate ourselves from, <coughs> from those who don't believe. <coughs> Instead, if we can resist sin, because we've predecided that this is what I will not do, and if we can do that among unbelievers, how many more might come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ and the incomparable love of God? We'll never reach them if we're nowhere neither. And I think, I think that's what we do sometimes. We say, well, I've got to get as far away from this as possible. And we say, well, I can't go to these kinds of places. I can't be around these kinds of people. I don't think Jesus would have ever said those words. I can't go to these kinds of places or be around these kinds of people. Jesus was like, bring them on. That's my crowd. Daniel and his guys had some choices here. Daniel and his guys were, were the smartest, brightest, you know, I'm, I guarantee you they were for their age, physically fit, handsome guys. That They could have done several things to try to get away from this situation. They, they could have hatched a plan to leave. They could have tried to escape. They could have cut some sort of deal. But Scripture doesn't show us any of that. What I think is this. I think that they knew they were right where God needed them to be right then. And I think they knew that their commitment to God and the things that they knew they would not be willing to do, that those things were going to be key. And they were comfortable in that situation. And they knew that they could use it for God's glory. And after the 10-day trial with the different food, the, just vegetables and water, it was clear that Daniel and his friends had something special going on because they were willing to stand out. And so listen to what happened in verses 16 and following. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. And God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. See, these God followers, the followers of the one true God, may not have been where they necessarily wanted to be. They wanted to be in Israel before Jerusalem was destroyed. They wanted to be in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. They wanted to be worshiping at their temple. This, this was not where they wanted to be. 
but I believe they knew they were right where God needed them to be. And I believe they knew with God in their corner that they could handle whatever came at them. They were willing to stand out. And we'll continue to see that through the series. And here's ultimately what I think and hope we'll learn from these stories. That it is an amazing honor to be used by God for His glory. Daniel and his friends, they were ready for anything if it meant serving the one true God. Here's the thing. I would much rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten and blending in. We don't stand out to make a statement. We don't stand out to be remembered. We stand out because God has called us to be different, and that alone will make us stand out. And if the byproduct of standing out, of being different, is a statement, or if it's somebody ends up remembering that, that's fine because God has called us to take our stand against the devil's schemes, against sin, against darkness, and against evil. And when we're truly following him, we can put on that armor of God and have God in our corner. We can take that stand in any situation. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. When you're following God, when you're in His will, you will stand out. You'll be glad for those opportunities. Because when we stand out, it it leads to opportunities to to tell people why you stand out. It leads to opportunities to talk to people about what's different about you. And eventually to talk about a God who loves them and and a Savior who died for them. And so you have to decide if you you right now, if you are standing out, if, if you're ready to stand out, if you have the courage to stand out. Because if we want to stand out for God, if that's something we actually want to do, I believe that God will give us the courage that it takes to do that. And that through that, we can do amazing things in this world for Him. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for Your Word. So, so often we, we, we open the Bible and we want to skip ahead to the New Testament because there, there's so much in the New Testament for us to learn from about how to live and and how to follow you. God, I'm thankful for, for the stories of the Old Testament, for the way that, that we can learn from these stories, like Daniel and, and his friends. These things that happened so long ago that we can, we can apply what they, what they did to our lives today. And I pray that as we walk through this series and as we learn what it means to, to stand out and to stand up and to stand firm, You would help us to take those challenges on, that we would want to do those exact things, to stand out, to stand up, to stand firm. God, we know that it's only possible to do those things, to stand up to the evils of this world with you in our corner, and we're thankful that you're with us. God, as we move into this time of communion, I pray that our focus would be on the cross and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.